Hey everybody, welcome to the Booterverse. A lot of people have asked me, Emery, what is this going to be like? They say, Booter, what are we going to experience? Oh my friends, it is a rocket ride to Awesome Town. It is going to be so mind-blowing that the whole Tom Cruise video collection cannot contain the delightfulness that you are going to experience. We are going to be bringing you things from my mind that haven't been explored by modern man. I don't mean to be too astronomical about it, but let's be honest. We all have our own little universes constructed by our own little minds. And this is a great time for you to enter mine. I mean, what what I mean is because... When you were doing the thing with the... Well, what we're going to try to do is bring to you people in my universe. We're going to have guests from all over this great nation and great globe of ours. From academicians to former presidents. Heck, even my downstairs neighbor is going to be on the show. And let me tell you, she is a gem. We're going to be bringing you stories that are happening all around this world and in your backyard. But it's not a new show. It's a universe. In fact, it's not just a universe. It's the Booterverse. Well, Buddhistas, Buterians, Buddhalibers, Buddhists, and Buddha babies, there may be some stories that have escaped your gravitational tug, but don't you worry, we're going to bring them back to you in a segment I like to call In My Orbit. Buddha. In today's top story, apparently not even the beloved pachyderm is safe from current standards of weight normalcy. Following current trends, expectant elephant mother Tess of Houston, Texas has been placed on a strict weight loss and exercise program. This is designed to shed nearly 500 pounds by the time she gives birth next year. Her regime consists of elephant yoga, power walking, and a sensible diet. Fat shaming has not been ruled out, but would be applied as a last resort. Representatives from the zoo where she resides declined to respond to allegations that such treatment stems from the fact that she is of Asian descent. In our next story, it has recently come out that a star Michigan high school linebacker has been secretly wearing an unwashed Wonder Woman costume to school. For the last five months, he has donned the leotard of the classic superheroine under his regular clothes. He says it has given him the courage to approach the cheerleaders with the same confidence he feels when he solves quadratic equations in third-period calculus. He's always loved the girls and the keggers, but this has given him a sense of purpose and responsibility. He's such a special young man, says his mother. As a warning, our final news segment should not be listened to by the faint of heart. In a stunning development that could see gaydar go the way of the mixtape, scientists now allege that they can tell a person's sexual orientation by their earwax. Lead researcher George Preddy, who freely admits to a long-standing interest in underarm odor, scored one for embattled pit sniffers everywhere when he discovered what the smell of earwax could yield. A team of crackpots, a.k.a. biometricists, have already been on the scent and are discovering more from armpit aroma. Might used Q-tips soon become the new celebrity smoking gun? Who will be the first to be brought down by the inevitable wax gate? What's next? Belly button lint more accurate than a polygraph? What in heaven's name can our nose goblins tell us? Imagine the TSA's relief when a proposed Pit Patriots program that would have required agents to personally sniff the underarms of America's traveling public was shelved in favor of a plan to develop the freedom swab. And in possibly unrelated news, Florida Democrat Joe Garcia was caught on film eating his earwax during a Judiciary Committee meeting last month. 
Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by your local farmer's market, a place where you can get farm-fresh eggs and ripe hipsters by the dozen. If you've been following the news lately, as we do here at the Booterverse, you'll know that there's a little something that's rotten in the state of Ukraine. And here for our international Ukrainian correspondent, Vasily Krapov. Hello, Emery. Good to see you. Thank you so much for being on show. It is a good time for me to be here. Thank you very much. Now, Vasily, quick question. You are, in fact, Ukrainian. That is right. Yes, of course. Me, myself, I am Ukrainian for person, yes. That's great. We wanted a Ukrainian perspective on what's going down. We know that the Russians have invaded the Ukraine, is that right? Let me tell you, it is very much sort of like invasion like of Normandy, okay? They come to our shores, they come, and this is what they do, okay, for you, yes. Uh, no, Vasily, I mean, what's going on? Let me tell you, they're invading crazier than Japanese tourists at a Ukrainian karaoke. Also, for plug of Ukrainian karaoke, number one karaoke in all of Europe, okay, for you. All good times head in Ukraine, happen karaoke bar, I love how are the Ukrainian people fighting back against this Russian intrusion? Let me tell you, for Ukrainian, what we have is weapon is microphone. Listen, what we put in a hand, we sing into, and it is like putting flower in muzzle of gun, like the hippies do. Listen, our music is our weapon against invasion or whatever. Sometimes it's called incursion. Sometimes it's called, you know, uh, borrowing sugar. I don't know how Russian call it. I think that is Russian word for it. We are borrowing Ukrainian sugar. That is the, the a loose equivalent uh, of what they are doing for to us. And it's good uh, not good timing for us, but you listen, good timing only count on karaoke stage. So if you have the good timing, everything all fits in the purpose, okay? And let me tell you, sometimes we, we are part of UN, but not European Union. And it is said because we are like in the middle of the Russia and the Europe. We're kind of like uh, the middle child. We very don't, people don't like us. We are very self uh, sad inside. And with us, you have to understand, like, the, the, the what we are doing is we are singing our way to freedom. That is how we do. Yes, Ukrainian singing way to freedom. So, Vasily, do you think that the Ukrainians will actually repel Russian forces by singing? Absolutely. Okay, listen. People hear Ukrainian karaoke. They say, wow, this is musical masterfulness. Okay, this is magical mystery tour stuff. Okay, what you are hearing is the music of the Lord and the archangels coming down to earth. And what you have is beautiful music. Listen, the, the things I hear in the, the Orthodox churches, you have not heard anywhere except for Ukrainian karaoke. Okay, it is beautiful timing. How can words and music fight against bombs and tanks? Well, let me tell you, sometimes we piping the music into Russian tanks and they stopping because they are so mesmerized by music, they just want to get out and dance. Because if anything does the dancing, it is a disco ball, which we have lots of in Ukraine. The children of the Ukrainians, we will put the disco ball in the, the, the bed, the cradle, which is you call cradle, what's the word? Yes, the cradle. That I think that's the word you're going for. Yes, of course. Yes, we put in cradle and the, we rock the babies and then we shine light on disco ball and they go right to bed. It's like Saturday night fever every night. It's beautiful times and the babies just get so rocked to bed to sleeping with them. It's nice for you to hear and to see beautiful timing. So have you actually blinded 
the Russian army buy disco balls? Oh, very much so. Let me tell you, sometimes we take disco ball in sunlight and it is like laser, okay? Like a James Bond laser, okay? It goes in their facing and what happens is they stop where they are going and they think, oh, disco fever coming right now. And disco fever is kind of like the fever we want to give them. What we do is we give them the disco fever, it is all over. We totally win war or something. We don't call war because, let's be honest, what they're basically doing, it's like second basing. I think I know what you mean, Vasily. Uh, Vasily, thank you so, so much. Today's episode of The Booterverse is brought to you by your local proctologist. He gives it two thumbs up. If you're like me, you have neighbors, and every time you enter the Booterverse, there's a special lady in my life, my downstairs neighbor, Judy Scheinbaum, that's going to be giving us a little segment called The Last Lung with Judy. Judy Scheinbaum, welcome to the show. Oh, Emery, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me here. I love it. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, Judy, what's been going on in the neighborhood? Oh, let me tell you, I've got all the gossip, and it is good. I would like to say something, though. You are my upstairs neighbor, and I love that. I love living under you. I love being under you. I think you know. However, last night, it was a little rockacy. I don't know if you were playing the music. I heard a little Van Halen, I believe. And let me tell you, I have a little Van Halen story a little later on. It's a little PG for the radio, so I can't have it. Judy, this isn't the radio per se. It's a podcast. It's on the internet. Oh, I don't care where you're playing it, honey. I just need you to know what you were doing last night. Not okay for these elder ears. I will keep that in mind, Judy. Thank you. I was just playing a couple records. Listen, those vinyls will lead you straight to hell. I don't know what you hipsters do with that music of yours. Isn't that what they call you hipsters? I don't understand it, but I don't like it. Well, Judy, some have called me a hipster, but I think it's sort of a derogatory term. I I try not to use it. Oh, sure, you're a true believer. Let me tell you, the only people I know who don't want to be called hipsters are hipsters. Let me tell you, it's like being an alcoholic. Once you can admit you're a hipster, you're on the road to recovery. Judy, thank you. I will... Keep that in mind. Anyway, back to the dish on the apartment. In 3B, you know, Melissa Frank, oh my god, she has been bringing around this new boy. And let me tell you, he is no good. I will say, though, he let me bum a cigarette the other day, and it was very delightful. But other than that, he was a no good sort of a person. I had five bags of groceries. He didn't even open the door. Couldn't you believe it? Well, Judy, I always try to... Open or shut the door on you whenever I can. Oh, I thank you, dear, so much. You are just a delight. I love you so much, and I'm so glad to be a part of your little show thing here. Oh, and seriously, can I light up in the studio? I know it's a little small space, but I swear to God, if I don't have a Paul Mall, I'm going to go all camel on you. <laughs> I don't know what that means, Judy. Go ahead and light up. Thank you, Emery. Seriously, it is my life long, if you know what I mean. If I didn't have this, I couldn't breathe. It's like oxygen to a plant or, or, or sulfur to, I don't know, a volcano. I love it. I can't stop. I'm in the year... Beep. Oh my, don't tell anybody. Let's erase that. Scritcher, scratcher, scritcher, scratcher. I, I, I can't have my name on the, the radio. Well, Judy, again, it's... <sighs> 
It's not the radio, but uh, we'll uh, we'll edit that out for you. We'll we'll cut that out. Oh, thank you, dear. You are a gem. And let me tell you, not one of those cubic zirconians that you get on QVC. One of those real classy diamonds, and I love it. Speaking of QVC, I was trying to buy one of those knife collections. Not for me, for my daughter Eliza. I don't know what she does with them, but I buy them for her anyway. And let me tell you something. My credit card was declined. I don't know how it happened, but I called my bank, and there was this gentleman so rude. I can't even imagine how the man has the job still, but it was four o'clock in the morning, and let me tell you, I keep strange hours. I think you know that. My comings and goings are my own business, but you know, and he was very rude to me, but all said, we switched around some money in a couple accounts. I got the knives. Eliza was happy. Speaking of Eliza, and I don't like to bring this up a lot because I know how you feel, but seriously, she's still available. After 37 years, she's still on the market. Let me tell you, there's stuff at Costco that hasn't been around that long. So please, this is just go get it, okay? Seriously, the price is so low right now. She would take a homeless man in a van, all right? That's how bad it's getting, all right? And you're a classy guy. You're a classy guy with, you know with a degree, a couple degrees, or whatever you do, and it's lovely. So just think about it, pray about it, so whatever you, you know, Michigan people do. I will keep that in mind. Uh, I've told you before, Eliza's not really uh, my type. She's, uh, she's, um, well, yeah, she's an interesting individual, and you've met my friends, and, you know, Eliza really doesn't get along with them very well. Well, you know what? Your friends are rude to her. That's what she told me. She said they were very not nice to you, and or to her, I mean, and that is just not okay. And let me tell you, you need to tell those people to be nicer. Well, Judy, I'll, you know, I'll do what I can. So this guy coming and going in 3B, I don't know what's going on there, but let me tell you, just because you bum a cigarette from somebody doesn't make them your lifelong companion friends, okay? He's not a golden retriever, for God's sake. I just need you to understand something. If you, the way to my heart is through my lungs, and I think you know that. I think you know. Judy, in the apartment that we live in, uh, obviously we've got a great setup here. It's lovely. Um... You know, what do you love best about the apartment that we're in right now? Oh, well, of course, rent control. Hello. Let me tell you, no other program was ever invented or devised by man slash woman slash gender neutral that you could ever have in your entire life. Rent control is like saying, here, have a pack of cigarettes for two ninety nine. It's amazing and happens once in a century. I love it. Well, that's great. Um, Judy, do you do you have anything you want to tell uh, the listeners uh, today? Well, seriously, I do have a little moral story. I was talking to my rabbi the other day, as I do on Tuesdays, because, you know, it's not a holy day, but I like it. And he's available, as most rabbis are on Tuesdays. And I said, Rabbi, what is the meaning of life? And he said, Judy, the meaning of life is very simple. You can find it in the Torah. But here's the meaning. You've got to find it for yourself. And I said, oh, Rabbi, can't you just give me the answer? He said, no. The lesson is in the looking. I said, Rabbi, thanks for nothing. If I wanted to be in a labyrinth, I would go date a minotaur. And let me tell you, I don't date bulls with horns, if you know what I mean. Judy, I don't actually know what you mean by that. Well, you know, there's a dictionary. Go read your mythology. It's in there. It's in the book. Okay, Judy, uh, thank you so, so much. Seriously, I mean, why couldn't the rabbi just tell me the answer? Is that too much to ask? If I wanted to go on a journey, I'd go to Bush Gardens, Tampa Bay.
If I wanted to go on a journey, I'd go to Arkansas. Isn't that what they call it? Where was that nice little Bill Clinton from? Arkansas, wasn't it? Judy, I think they called it Arkansas. Whatever. I liked him. Where did he ever go? Well, he's a former president. He's kind of around. Let me tell you, I never run into him. He doesn't call, and he certainly doesn't write. Well, Judy, I think he's a little busy. I don't care. Where's the love? I voted for the man twice, and seriously, where is the love? Well, Judy, I don't think it that he's, it's not that he doesn't love you. Listen, if you don't call and you don't write, you might as well be dead to me. And I'm sorry, Bill, but you're dead to me. Thank you, Judy. I hope you've had a good time here on the Booterverse. Oh my god, it's a Booterverse? It's a universe? Oh, I love it. Hello, sign me up. Where's my rocket ship to heaven? Well, that was Judy. She'll be back with us. I can only imagine. Today's episode of The Booterverse is brought to you by Cummings Family Dentistry. If you're not getting a filling, you might as well be coming. Cummings Family Dentistry. And now on The Booterverse, fake presidential speeches in history. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because I am hard. Today on the Booterverse, we have a very special guest. Ben Wilson, a literary scholar who specializes in U.S. Southern literature with a global emphasis, is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Kentucky. He's the author of two forthcoming essays, Approaching the Other Through Aesthetics, Faulkner, Warren, Native Americans, and Modernism, in the volume Faulkner and Warren, which is coming out later this year. He's also working on Mimetic Desire, Rene Girard and the Sacrificial Violence. I don't know about you, but if I have violence, I want it to be sacrificial. That's going to be in the volume Flannery O'Connor Among the Theologians and Philosophers. Today, Ben's on the show to talk about a little thing called trigger warnings. If ever the military and the academy had vocabulary in common, it's this. Ben, thank you for entering the Booterverse. Thank you for having me on the show. You are so welcome. So, Ben, for those people who are listening who don't know what a trigger warning is, give us a little context with that. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what I do know. and A trigger warning started on feminist blogs um, and on places that people went to who were maybe suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. How do feminists suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, anybody can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I see. Yes. uh, But in particular, because there are a lot of people that are attracted to these kinds of online forums where you can talk about struggles with eating disorders or you can talk about sexual abuse um, and other things like that, Whenever someone was going to delve into that topic, they would offer a trigger warning to let you know, hey, I'm going to be talking about my own sexual abuse. If you are sexually abused, you may not want to read this because it could trigger a post-traumatic stress disorder episode where you, uh, from my understanding, is you have uh, quite vivid flashbacks to, to whatever it was that triggers your PTSD. How do individuals, perhaps feminists, want to bring trigger warnings into the academy? I think it's important to note that this isn't exclusively a feminist phenomenon, um, but the way they want to bring them into the academy is to require uh, professors to include on their syllabi what materials might be covered in individual classes that might trigger uh, a PTSD episode, basically. So, for instance, if we want to look at Oberlin College, they put together an official document on trigger warnings that they wanted to disseminate to all the professors And they stated, and this is particularly uh, important in what I do, literary studies, because uh, 
I don't know if you've ever read a novel. A I, I have not. I have never okay. actually read an article or a novel. Okay, I didn't think so. But um, having said that, a lot of them are pretty graphic uh, for various reasons. That's why I don't read them because... That's good. You know, yeah, don't watch graphic. Quentin Tarantino movies either. Love Tarantino. So uh, Chena Echebe wrote a novel called Things Fall Apart. Indeed they do. Have you looked at Congress lately? Yes. The document stated that you may want to include trigger warnings um, on if you're if you're teaching Echebe's things fall apart because it may and this is a quote trigger readers who have experienced racism colonialism religious persecution violence suicide and more so for instance if you're teaching a literature course you need to assess all of the different sto- short stories novels poems that your students are going to read over the course of the semester mine for the trigger warnings and include those in your syllabus. So that day, any student that feels like they might be offended by the material wouldn't have to go to class. So give me an example. Let's say um, the cat in the hat had a trigger warning. Would it be something like feline kidnapping, beware? Or what about the Berenstein Bears? Uh, Trigger warning, grisly activity. I think with the cat in the hat, it would be a stranger danger. Mm, Yeah. I like that. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. But not to make light of something that is... Obviously, I mean, we're, what we're talking about is very serious. Right. Uh, I don't ever let pussycats into my home. I, I don't believe in it. I did once, and it was my companion for three and a half years, and that was enough. I'm done with cats now. Wow, that's quite a relationship. It was. It was very mutually antagonistic. Wow, an antagonistic relationship. Kind of like the Tea Party in the GOP, am I right? Well, I don't know politics as well as you do, but I, I, I just, I'd like to think that the Tea Party has an antagonistic relationship with everybody. Mm, fair yeah. point. Kind of like the Amish. Now back to trigger warnings. Yes. What sort of label would one put on an article or a book according to this philosophy? Well, the more noble aspect of it, I think, is that it wants to highlight the ways in which the powerful have oppressed the weak. And that's not something that's unique to any particular time in history. I mean, I think the most basic study of history would show that history has often been a horror show. And so, for instance, uh, I talked about Achebe's novel already. Trigger warnings want to highlight things like gender oppression, um, oppression of homosexuals, um, any kind of uh, racial conflict, and then also things as that aren't necessarily tied to power structures, just say abusive relationships, violence, uh, war violence, obviously is very, you know, significant, especially as veterans from our conflicts come back and maybe, you know, have to read um, Hemingway's Farewell to Arms or something which does have war violence in it. Obviously that could trigger PTSD uh, flashbacks in an individual suffering from war trauma. It surely could. And I think the point is we're talking about reading these works. When individuals read these works, ostensibly they're not reading an entire novel in the classroom. They'll be reading it on their own, right? In the privacy of their own home. Because this is not a public endeavor, does that sort of lessen the need for trigger warnings? Because these students, and if I remember my college days, I didn't always read the material, but if students are actually reading these books, won't they be doing it outside of the classroom? Yes, absolutely. And the logistics of how to implement the trigger warnings in that regard, I think, are still a little fuzzy and a little bit murky. When these first started to get brought into the academy, it was largely because of a student named Bailey uh, Loverin. She's a student at UC Santa Barbara, and she introduced the resolution uh, calling for trigger warnings on class syllabi after sitting in on a class where they watched a film 
that made her uncomfortable because it had a graphic depiction of rape in it. And she herself, I, I believe, is a sexual abuse survivor. So obviously for her, that's a very um, sensitive topic. And certainly in my own classroom experience, I showed my students a documentary film, part of a documentary film, uh, this previous semester that was on Vice, uh, you know, which is a media uh, outlet not known for its sensitive co uh, content. And it was <clears throat> a... Uh, a documentary on two independent filmmakers in Brooklyn who travel out to New Mexico to work as strippers for a week to find out what that's like. I get, I let my students know ahead of time, this is, you know, something that you may not want to watch. And if you don't want to, you can leave the room. I feel like that is the way to handle that kind of situation. And with no disrespect to the student body of UC Santa Barbara or this individual student, Ms. Loverin, um, I don't believe that this sort of wholesale uh, implementation of trigger warnings on class syllabi is the answer to what they are pointing out is a legitimate issue that could come up for people that have PTSD. Well, the thing in your classroom, when you were talking, you were showing a visual medium, right? You were showing a clip or a movie, correct? Yes, and and that connection with Bailey Loverin is that her idea for this came from when she saw a document, uh, a film in class. I see. Yeah, so it, it has its origins in visual content, which in some ways is I understandable. Think, I, I mean, I think if we're watching visual or graphic depictions, it, there is something to be said for that. Now, here's the thing: you, you mentioned the word uncomfortable. And with trigger warnings, I think it's very interesting because it sort of has to be established that an individual has had a prior experience that would trigger sort of an episode. Well, what if something just made, certain content just made an individual uncomfortable? If, if they said, oh, well, I don't like this, so it's made me uncomfortable. How does that factor in? Does, do trigger warnings actually prevent or could they prevent students from being exposed to content that could actually be beneficial, even though it may not be easy to stomach? That is a great question. That's a huge question, uh, because we're talking about the intersection of a lot of different things there. First off, I think it's important to point out that if a student has actually been diagnosed with PTSD, more than a trigger warning, what they need is treatment. Now, this isn't an observation that's original to me. Actually, a psychiatrist named Sarah Roth pointed that out in an article in the Chron Chronicle of Higher Education. And she pointed out that clinical options for PTSD treatment currently, although obviously, of course, consensus is a hard thing to establish, but from her perspective, uh, PTSD treatment options are not in favor largely of aversion therapy, but rather are in, more interested in what's called exposure therapy. And also something I think is interesting called narrative therapy. And narrative therapy is basically where the PTSD victim tells their story repeatedly in order to sort of purge it from their system. Being a literature scholar, of course, people's narratives and just the phenomenon of narratives and storytelling in society are very interesting to me. So I think there's actually a lot of ways that we can work creatively to help these students, any student that has PTSD. I mean, I've taught at four institutions of higher learning now, and every single one of them had an Office of Disability Services. I believe those kinds of accommodations should be made for people suffering from PTSD. When we're talking about the concept of what makes people uncomfortable, that's another subject entirely. Part of the purpose of academia and learning, especially in my field, is to make people a little uncomfortable, not for the sole purpose of making them uncomfortable because it's fun to watch people squirm, although it is, but because ideas are sometimes frustrating and uncomfortable and controversial. 
And we need to talk about these things, not sweep them under a rug. Absolutely. And I'm no stranger to making people uncomfortable. Let's get down to brass tacks, okay? I was never an athlete, so I never got to be excused from classes because I was shooting b-ball down by the school. Now, how many students do you think would actually use this notion of trigger warnings to then go ahead and try to get out of assignments? Listen, I'll tell you one thing. If college students are great at anything, it is getting out of assignments. So how do we try to work around this notion that certain students actually have learning disabilities and issues that, that are genuine, and then there will be those who try to game the system? I'm really glad you brought that up because to me as someone who not only is working as a scholar, but also as part of my uh, funding through the university teaches, and I taught before I came to the University of Kentucky, uh, I can tell you that my students uh, across the board have trouble with things like attendance and have trouble with things like uh, completing assignments on time. I don't think that's an awful thing or a terrible thing. I think that's pretty common. I think I struggled with that when I was an undergraduate. So I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, maybe perhaps too much so, but what uh, what it would cause for me, I think, would just be a giant paper headache uh, where I have to keep track of every student that was allowed to not come to class the day that I showed the truck stop strippers video, which was 10 minutes long out of a 75-minute class. To me, Wait, that doesn't... truck stop hookers? Strippers. Strippers. Did I say hookers earlier? I don't know. I just hear one, I think the other, and I'd like to apologize for any of the adult entertainment community who may be listening. Uh, I mean no disrespect. Absolutely. The Vice documentary, The Truck Stop Strippers, which is hard to say, Truck Stop Strippers. I like truck, truck Stop Hookers. I think that it, it has a better ring It has to more of a sibilance, right? It's sibilance. Yeah, sibilance, sibilance yes. But no, I mean, I think that excusing someone from the entire class, the entire 75-minute period, because they don't want to participate in a 10-minute viewing exercise is, is a bit excessive. You know, the, the, the other 65 minutes of that class were valuable. Those things that we talked about that day needed to uh, the participation of everybody that was in class that day. And so, you know, I think these things should be handled on a case-by-case basis and ultimately should be up to the discretion of the of the professor. Absolutely. But here's the thing. Let's say I have a food allergy to yams. I mean, what if reading Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart gives me a trigger warning? I mean, the man talks more about yams, but the thing is, what if my allergy toward yams triggers a reaction and I'm unable to read the novel? What do we do then? Well, I think that what we need to do then is uh, have an intervention with the student because obviously they have some serious issues in their life. But that's not the professor's job. Absolutely. Well, and what is the professor's job? If there's a portion of a novel that may be questionable, do you cut it out? Do you give a synopsis to the student? How, how would this work in practicality? Because if you ask me, it seems like it's just labeling for labeling's sake. If I had a student that had a legitimate PTSD issue, I would probably offer an alternative assignment to them. I've given students that option before, not in this scenario and they've almost universally turned it down because whenever you hear optional assignment you automatically think more work and if there's one thing that students have an aversion to it's it's more work me too i've spent my whole life not working to keep my hands in the pristine condition they are they are as soft and supple as a newborn baby's head and if this doesn't work out i would suggest maybe going into hand modeling because you do really have lovely hands well thank you ben i you're, i appreciate that you're welcome i'm actually here to lift up not tear down oh i love that yeah i, love I that know model. i know how much you do no, I mean, I think that, uh, all joking aside, I think that that 
if we're talking about an issue with someone having an actual clinical disability, I would find a way to work around that. I would I would move heaven and earth, honestly. And I think that's something that isn't universal to all college instructors or college professors. But I would say, by and large, most of us are here, you know, believing that we're here to help people in as much as we can. Absolutely. And I think what we really need to focus on, is it a form of censorship, perhaps? Now, that's that's actually the word I was searching for. There is something about this that is eerily similar to a form of censorship. And I say that with all the guarded caution that I possibly can, just because it seems to me that just banning about words like censorship is not helpful. Just like banning about words like racism is not helpful. This kind of overuse of inflammatory rhetoric isn't anything that's new. Censorship, to me, might be a strong word for what this is, but it's close enough to the phenomenon that I feel uncomfortable with it. Because, you know, as someone pointed out, if you're going to not read any novels that contain things like sexism or homophobia or violence, violence against women, military violence, uh, sexual abuse, what novels are you then going to read? If Ray Bradbury was here on the show and he was writing, what would he say about trigger warnings? What would he want on his book? Would he want anything on his book? Because it's about burning books for heaven's sakes. I think that uh, Ray, Ray Bradbury was sort of a curmudgeonly type. I don't think he'd have much uh, good to say about this. There's a big difference between burning books and and wanting to put a trigger warning on a book. Really? Because it seems to me that I'm a big fan of slippery slopes. I like slip and slides. I like blow up houses that you can go down. I even like, you know, going into hot air balloons. I mean, just really anything that you're slipping and sliding. It's a beautiful thing. How can we not say that maybe someone will say, well, this book is about this and I want to burn it because it shouldn't be in the library. I think that that phenomenon in history, which we're all familiar with, is what makes some people uncomfortable about about this. It's it's just close enough that they can see the similarities. Having said that, the slippery slope that I'm concerned about, if we even want to call it that, isn't quite that drastic. It's closer to the slippery slope of where does this stop, right? So if, for instance, I was to take The Great Gatsby and mine it for all the possible trigger warnings, where would I stop, right? How am I, who is not an expert in PTSD triggers, which can include, from my understanding, literally anything, a bag blowing down the street or the taste of copper in your mouth. So, uh, you know, how do I how do I evaluate as a non-expert how many trigger warnings are in The Great Gatsby? And let's say that I want to teach... Well, can there a, be one for melancholia? Because that man was a very somber, melancholy sort of a guy. And I do most of my research in modernist literature, and Fitzgerald was a modernist, and most modernist literature is incredibly melancholic. It's incredibly depressive, and because it's a, because it was written during a time in which fascism and communism were sort of on the rise with their attendant abuses, uh, almost every... I can't think of a book or a poem or a short story that came out of that period of writing that wasn't in some way involved in something that would be a trigger warning. Was it more or less melancholy than the performance of U.S. automotive sectors? I would say probably less melancholy. That's a pretty high level of sadness right there. If Amazon had more recalls than GM, they'd be out of business. How would the drones factor into that? Well, I think that uh, for those who have who have been uh, attacked by drones, we need a trigger warning on all Amazon Prime drones. You know, look out. They're coming to your neighborhood. 
Speaking of, Amazon has been in the news also lately, and it seems like Stephen Colbert is kind of taking them on. Do you have any comments? I think Stephen Colbert is one of the most astute observers of the contemporary American scene. And one of the things that he really captures so well is that that both sides of any debate on the fringes tend to get equally ridiculous in different ways. Mm-hmm. So on the fringe of the a trigger warnings debate, there's this sort of like, well, just get over it. Life is hard, you know, deal with it kind of thing. And on the other fringe, it's like, we can't possibly put anybody in any circumstances where they might be offended or uncomfortable. And he would lampoon both of those sides. Having said that, his problem with Amazon at the end of the day comes down to the fact that their business practices are taking money out of his pocket because they're feuding with his publisher. In that regard, Stephen's just acting in his own self-interest. It seems like trigger warnings would have a following on the far left and the far right. Because if it's true that there is sort of a feminist wing that is pushing the trigger warning, it also seems on the evangelical Christian right, individuals who don't want to be involved with certain content might see this as a benefit as well. So is this notion of trigger warnings creating some strange bedfellows? I, I'm really glad that you you mentioned that because I kind of thought I'd kind of thought that before. Uh, there is a long and strong, and I emphasize both of those words. A long and strong. I emphasize those words as well. Yes, as every virile man should. Uh, there is a long and strong history in uh, contempt. Well, in just you know right leaning fundamentalist Christianity of of censorship. Now, in this case, it is for the good of the individual, you know, so not to get into a theological kind of discussion, but basically the argument is, well, you know, you want to stay away from things that might put your soul in danger of hell. That's basically what it boils down to at the end of the day, right? Would you ask somebody listening to this podcast to turn it off if they were feeling like their soul was in danger of going to hell? I would, I would direct them to the nearest priest. Indeed, as as would I. Yes, I don't have those credentials. It's a, as Obama said, it's a little above my pay grade. Mm. Yes. On the other hand, the the far left elements that are pushing for trigger warnings are also arguing that is for the good of the consumer of the media. Can't um, consumers just decide what's good for them? I mean, at the end of the day, if I didn't want to read about yams, I wouldn't go to a Chevy. Aren't there multiple options to be equally educated on every issue? Or are there not? No, I think there are multiple options. I mean, if I didn't think that, I wouldn't be a scholar or, uh, you know, an academic or whatever you want to call it. But I think at the same time, I think it's useful to point out, and this is sort of an argument supporting the trigger warning side, but in, in the interest of nuancing their argument and being fair on my part, I should point out that that their response to that would be, and I think this is a fair response, there's not an options for those students who, I mean, uh, an academic classroom is sort of a forced consumption, right? So you will read this book because it's good for you um, mm. kind of thing. You eat know, you will peas. eat your porridge because yes. it's good for you. Mm. I don't I don't support porridge. Here on the Buddhaverse, I'd like to go on record as saying I do not support porridge. I don't either. I'm much more of an oatmeal guy myself. The idea of forced consumption, I think, is a is a is a good argument, and I think it's the reason why, if we're talking about somebody that has a legitimate issue with PTSD, we do need to give them an option, right? Is offense necessarily bad? Is being offended from time to time all that bad of a thing? I don't seek to offend my students directly, but I always tell them that we're going to be discussing ideas that may offend you or bother you. 
And I'm not presenting you with these ideas to convince you that I'm right, you know, and that you even, are wrong. Even, even though as a professor, you are always right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I never have ever doubted my rightness. Excellent. Uh, yes, no. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that you and I get along so well, because you likewise have never doubted your rightness. Is that correct? That's absolutely yes. correct. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm getting a good read on you. Well, you know, I mean, it seems to me that these trigger warnings... Are, are putting them on a book or a syllabus is kind of like going on a gluten-free diet when you don't have a gluten aversion. What's the point? I'm, I'm very much anti-gluten-free diets if you don't have a gluten aversion. But having said that, you know, my, my thing to, with the, what I say to my students is I'm not here to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm here to present you with a wide variety of information, a wide variety of ideas, so that you can sharpen your mind mm. and so that you can challenge your own ideas and ultimately if you come out having the same ideas but knowing better why that you hold to your belief so for instance if you are um say politically conservative and you come into a classroom and you're presented with some politically liberal materials uh, apart from you know those students that just automatically kind of switch to that position which is sort of what people think i would rather just see the student have their mind sharpened and have their uh, defense of their own ideas and their own self-justifications for why they believe what they believe uh, better and richer and stronger because they have taken the time to interface with other ideas that may have been threatening to them when they were, say, 16. I sharpen my brain by playing the game 2048. Why can't we have more iPhone apps in the syllabus? You know, that's a great question, and I would, I would have to direct you to uh, other people in the division of writing rhetoric and digital studies at UK, not me. Can we have a class called Candy Crush, awesome or more awesome? I think that has a lot of potential, and I have n no desire to do anything with it. Well, you may not have a desire to do it, but let me tell you, I am burning up the levels, and it is a delight. I've learned more in my Candy Crush saga than most people do in advanced lit classes. I'm sorry, Ben, but I think the Academy has had its day. I think the iPhone is the way to go. Let's get on some apps and sharpen our minds. Now, what really is important about trigger warnings is its emphasis in the media. The Washington Post even went to Twitter and asked their readers to post on hashtag trigger warning fail something uh, regarding a book or a piece of literature, and they wanted to know what trigger warnings they could use. If you had to put a tweet out there with a hashtag trigger warning fail, what would it be? I don't know. I, I mean, I think the entire idea of putting a trigger warning on Shunei Achebe's Things Fall Apart is a giant fail in and of itself. Well, listen, my friend, I once had a lunch table colonized by a bunch of cheerleaders, and it was not a good thing. Colonization is not something to be laughed at, my friend. It is obviously not something to be laughed at. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, any experience with cheerleaders can be very traumatic, so I want to support you in that however I can. Although I've not had any traumatic experiences with cheerleaders because I practice aversion therapy when it comes to cheerleaders. Both female and male cheerleaders, I should qualify that. This doesn't break along gender lines. It's just cheerleaders in general. Absolutely not. I've seen some of those male cheerleaders, and I would not want to cross them in a dark we alley. We had a male cheerleader as president, and it was pretty much a from what I remember. Actually, we had several, and I don't want to make names, but uh, one of those may be making his way on the show in a few weeks, so just stay tuned for that. I can't wait to hear that. Well, Ben, thank you so, so much. Any last thoughts you have on Trigger Warnings, The Academy, Amazon, uh, or, or that delightfully red beard that you've got? Thank you for uh, 
drawing attention to my beard and the listeners don't get to enjoy the glory of my beard. Not as much as I do. Yes. Uh, I do want to point out one last thing, and, and this is this is a serious thing, and I think it's worth pointing out. But, you know, this conversation's been kind of light and humorous, but this has become more significant in the connection between the fact that, that this movement to get trigger warnings on campus syllabi started at UC Santa Berkeley and that there was, or sorry, UC Santa Barbara, Santa Berkeley, that would... That would be an interesting... Santa Berkeley. I know, yeah. Is that like Santa's holiday, you in, know, getaway? In yes. Yeah, actually it is. You, uh, He just looks like all the other uh, middle-aged hippies with big white beards hanging around Berkeley. But no, uh, to get back to what I was saying, obviously, so this, this movement started at UC Santa Berkeley in a lot of ways. And of course, the Elliot Roger shootings happened at UC Berkeley. And with the attendant uh, focus in the media on the ways, the different forces in his life that kind of moved him to adopt the highly misogynistic, highly self-loathing, delusional, paranoid uh, kind of thing he had going on in his mind. I mean, obviously, this is a conversation that is, it has, you know, there are consequences. There are real world consequences for the media that we view and take in. I I can't help but think that his predilection for violent video games had something to do with his desire to enact that fantasy in real life. That's not something to laugh about or joke about. So in all this kind of lighthearted banter, I just want people to know that I do understand that there is a very real personal cost in these conversations. And uh, at the same time, I'm fully with um, the uh, Monty Python former Monty Python or John Cleese's distinction between seriousness and solemnity. We can have a serious discussion about this, but it doesn't mean we need to be solemn all the time. A little lighthearted levity never hurt anybody's feelings, I hope. And if you want to talk about the ultimate and trigger warnings, I was recently taking a long drive back from Charleston, South Carolina, and I listened to Louis C.K.'s album Chewed Up on the way back, and I think that Louis C.K. is hilarious but that album probably would require several trigger warnings. At the same time, I find his ability to joke about offensive things to be incredibly refreshing, like a warm bath or a junior mint. Well, I love junior mints uh, and warm baths, so I'll be doing that a little later. Uh, But Ben, one last question for you, my friend. If the Book of Mormon had a trigger warning, what would it be? The trigger warning would be, don't go see it with your mother. Thanks, Ben, so much for being here. And this has been The Booterverse. In a moment of genuine sincerity, I'd like to thank all of you who have joined me on this beautiful ride. The Booterverse is up and running, and we are glad that you're on board. A special thanks to Ben Wilson for being my first guest, and for all the other special guests that come my way. To Judy Scheinbaum and Vasily, well, let's just say the thank you can't go far enough. To Courtney Shinneberry and the guys at Imaginary Sounds, thank you so, so much for your support. I'd also like to thank the listeners. For all of you who tuned into the Booterverse this inaugural episode, thank you so much. You guys are amazing. And if you haven't gotten enough of me on the podcast, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under The Booter. And you can always find me on Pinterest because, you know, men should be on Pinterest. I'll see you later. And always remember, unlike other forms of interstellar travel, the Booterverse is only a click away.